Welcome to Talking in Vain, a podcast of the Infusion Nurses Society. I'm Dawn Berendt, the Clinical Education and Publications Manager for the INS. My guest today is Sarah Keller. Sarah, welcome. Thank you. Sarah, I'm going to have you tell, me, tell us about yourself and about your work. Yeah. So um, thank you for having me on this podcast. I am an infectious diseases doctor at Johns Hopkins Hospital, and I have an interest in um, healthcare-associated infections outside of acute care settings, so particularly in home infusion therapy. Okay. Very good. We are really honored to have you here with us today. So I'm going to ask you to start way at the beginning. Let's talk about the definition for CLABSI. Okay. So CLABSI stands for Central Line Associated Bloodstream Infection. The very first piece of this, central lines, um, indicate that this is a catheter that does ex- um, that does extend to one of the great vessels um, or into the into the aorta, and for that reason, the definition actually excludes things like peripheral catheters and midlines. And collapses have been a focus of, regula- of regulation and research in acute care settings for the last 15 to 20 years. There's been a number of large um, studies and large collaboratives um, that have in the acute care setting brought the rate of collapses down significantly um, over 15% or I'm sorry, over 50% in the last 15 years. And um, this has been one of really one of the great successes in patient safety over this time span. Collapses have historically been a large uh, contributor to healthcare-associated um, patient injury, patient uh, mortality, um, extended hospital stays, uh, increased hospital costs, and just overall um, suffering and pain for the patients. So the work that has been done in acute care settings has really contributed to a decline in um, a lot of these poor patient outcomes. Outside of acute care settings, for example, in home infusion therapy, however, collapses have not traditionally been as well-defined or as well-regulated. In acute care settings, the National Healthcare Safety Network, which is a program through the Centers for Disease Control, the CDC, has a platform through which um, all acute care hospitals are required to report certain healthcare-associated infections, including CLABSI. And they have, there is a very strict and very well-defined definition for what is exactly a CLABSI in acute care hospitals. Over the years, this definition has actually expanded um, or become a little bit more specific over, um, over time. It currently is about 45 pages long and requires somebody mm-hmm. to really have a lot of expertise and a lot of ex- and um, a lot of time and a lot of patience to sit down with um, a, with a possible with a bloodstream infection in a patient with a central line and go through all of the criteria to see whether that might meet a CLABSI de- uh, the definition of a CLABSI. Um, there's the, um, the numerator, is this a collapse or not? And then the page, um, we also typically report seeing uh, collapses using a denominator, which is sort of 
catheter, typically catheter days. So a patient with one central line over um, in a day would be counted as one. A patient with two central lines in a day would be counted as two. Um, and a patient who has a central line for two days would also be counted as two. And so they um, typically that's sort of the number over which the CLABSIs are reported. Uh, this is a very important part of regulation, actually, in acute care hospitals. Um, hospitals are required to report this data. They can actually lose money from Medicare if, um, if they have elevated rates. Um, and uh, expenses related to CLABSIs are not um, are, are not something that insurance will cover. Um, so the hospital also has to eat that cost. So. For those of you who work in large healthcare, um, in large healthcare networks, um, and have listened to, this is often one of the pieces of data that may get presented to um, a healthcare network, uh, uh, healthcare systems board, for example. Um, it really is considered that important. Okay. So I understand that very recently there was a national outpatient infusion CLABSI survey. Tell us about that and tell us about the participants. Yes. So we actually did um, a series of, of these with the background really being um, an HSN, again, through the CDC, has not put the same sort of focus on CLABSI in outpatient um, settings as it has in inpatient settings. And in fact, for home infusion therapy in particular, there are certain parts of the most recent form of the definition that actually would exclude almost every patient in home infusion therapy. There's a line that says the patient cannot be interfering with or tampering with the um, central line that I think was supposed to be getting at patients who um, may be injecting illicit substances into their central lines while inpatient. However, mm -hmm. in, in home infusion therapy, that is the norm for a patient to be infusing their medication or a caregiver to be infusing the medication um, without, a nor without a nurse present. So um, in conversations with uh, um, home infusion uh, agencies, um, home nursing agencies, um, the inpatient folks who may um, uh, take patients if they're admitted, and trying to figure out how we can improve uh, CLABSI rates. The thought that was that perhaps first we should determine what a CLABSI and home infusion therapy is, what, whether we can, we can sort of come up with a definition. Um, NHSN is uh, um, interested in this, but it, it um, with the number of different initiatives and priorities that they um, that they currently have, it's unclear whether they will be able to work on this at this particular moment. So um, we started with talking with a couple of um, professional societies that uh, different stakeholders in the process would uh, belong to. And so we started first with a very extensive literature search, um, looking through all of the papers that have been published on complications of catheters in home infusion therapy, um, complications specifically of centralized in home infusion therapy, and uh, looking at the NHIA data initiative. And through this, uh, came up with uh, came up with a couple of with the number of definitions that have been used. We also then sent out surveys to members of the Society of Healthcare Epidemiology of America or SHEA, 
um, which primarily is uh, um, healthcare infe- uh, a healthcare epidemiologist working in acute care hospitals. Um, we sought some guidance from the Association of Professionals in Infection Control, or APIC, as well. A survey also went out to uh, the National Home Infusion Association. And then some of you may have also taken the survey for the Infusion Nurses Society, um, and which we very much appreciate. And we looked at all of these different results um, together, and um, uh, that that report was just uh, pub- recently published online. And what was very interesting through all of this is that first there was a lot of difference between uh, um, differences between what different folks would consider if if they've ever tried to look into this problem, what they would consider a collapse. There is also a lot of differences amongst um, uh, what challenges people, uh, folks faced. Um, and there is a lot of challenges between reporting data back and forth between uh, acute care hospitals and the home infusion or home nursing agencies. Uh, for example, if a patient uh, called their um, their, ner- their home care, ner- their home um, infusion nurse and said, I have, a, I have a fever and I feel very ill, that nurse might say, you should go to the emergency room. And in the emergency room, they then get admitted. Um, blood cultures there come back with uh, come back positive, and there's a concern for collapse. Um, however, that information may not ever actually get reported back to the agency um, for mm-hmm. again for use for their whole for their own quality improvement um, work. So, one outcome for that survey was that. Um, Communication really is um, really is a need, um, and then there is also a lot of uh, cons- uh, number of people who said that they weren't quite sure where exactly they stand in terms of their um, in terms of their rates. Um, There's a lot of confusion in the community about what different agencies were using, um, and I know in talking uh, kind of more one on one with others. Um, I've seen a lot of variation in terms of what different agencies, uh, different agencies mm-hmm. were report. Um, mm-hmm. So this sparked, uh, could, I'm sorry, go ahead. I could, I could really see how calculating the number of line days in an acute care setting versus an outpatient organization, how, how that would really differ. Yes. And it is extremely difficult outside of an acute care setting. Part of this mm-hmm. we have sort of discovered um, is that acute care hospitals are pretty much all now on uh, electronic health uh, record systems. And mm-hmm. in purchasing these electronic health record systems, uh, because many of these systems were purchased or upgraded during the time when uh, these hospitals were required to report this data, um, they all came with part of the package was that it would um, there would be an easy way to report central line days without having to do much manual checking or um, uh, or manual calculation. So infection preventionists, who are the folks that in many hospitals actually sit and do the, um, and do this work kind of day in and day out, actually don't really need to worry too much about going to calculate the, um, this, the central line days. Uh, there's a lot more variation in electronic health record systems in 
uh, outside of acute care hospitals. And it's in talking to many, it's my sense that the, uh, the same, um, that this same uh, uh, ability is just has, was not built into the electronic health systems that do exist in ambulatory. So mm-hmm. one nice thing would be if we could make this request on mass to make this data easier to calculate because it is very difficult without this without these automated systems. Definitely, definitely. So, it, you know, one of the thoughts that comes to my mind is um, when a patient comes from either a home care setting, any type of outpatient setting, and now becomes inpatient. And um, when the patient comes in with a central line, we know that we're concerned about everything that is present on admission or present on arrival. Um, Tell us any conversations that that took place during this process around that topic? Yeah, that's a very interesting topic. Um, Another, so what acute care hospitals report is, um, our CLABSIs that, and for an acute care hospital, a CLABSI is something that has not been uh, present or incubating on arrival, which means that really for the first 72 hours after admission to an acute care hospital, um, if uh, if there is a CLAB seat that does not actually get reported um, because it's considered that that was um, pre that that was pre-existing, and so it's really if somebody if a patient were to go into a hospital with a central line, and um, 24 hours after admission, a spike of fever and uh, blood cultures are drawn that came back as positive. That CLABSI would not be attributed to the hospital. And in fact, because it happened within the first 72 hours, um, mo- uh, many tools that are, use, uh, are built using the electronic medical record system actually wouldn't um, exclude those particular those particular patients. Um, so there's this whole other thing of um, acute care hospitals may also not know if a patient has come in uh, with a CLAB seat because they're not required to um, they're not required to report that um, that data. Um, if a home infusion agency were interested in looking at their own CLAB seat rates, um, that would this would also be another consideration. So. Um, a lot of uh, in discussions and kind of looking at some of the data um, and what others have reported have done in studies. Typically, a 48 or 72 hour after um, either admission to home infusion or discharge from the hospital would be sort of a window period in which, if a bloodstream infection occurred, that bloodstream infection may not apply to that home infusion agency because it could be considered as this sort of incubating um, or pres- uh, incubating on admission to home infusion or present on admission to home infusion um, mm-hmm. as to kind of keep it more in line with what acute care uh, acute care hospitals are doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this might sound silly, but, but the thought crosses my mind that um, there may be some practice to 
to culture patients uh, upon arrival, upon admission, uh, just to ensure that there's nothing going on yeah. uh, when the patient first comes. Do you see, do you, do you find that that's a topic of conversation as well or a concern that maybe that's what needs to happen? And if so, boy. Yeah, I actually would push quite in the other direction that, that this is something that should not happen. Very good. Um, and good. Uh, in the, you know, again, in acute care hospitals, this was something that was considered many years back. However, what ended up happening is when um, there's there is a chance of contamination whenever patients um, have a blood culture drawn. So um, there's different rules and different criteria that we use when blood cultures are. Um, to first off, to see whether a blood culture is appropriate, um, and secondly, when a blood culture comes, if a blood culture were to come back as positive, um, if it meets certain criteria or has certain organisms, we typically consider that a contaminant and not something that's actually causing the patient um, a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we draw blood cultures without a very clear reason, you know, such as uh, such as a patient clinically, it looks like they may be having a bloodstream infection. Uh, if that culture comes back as positive, it is very hard for people to not treat that, even if it is a contaminant. Mm-hmm. And so they get um, put on uh, typically IV antibiotics. They often end up needing to get readmitted to the hospital, so your readmission rates would go um, sky high. Um, we know in hospitals that have done this, their C. diff rates went up because of the additional antibiotics that were um, that were. Uh, used, um, and they've developed toxicities from the unnecessary antibiotics as well, um, such as renal failure, things like that. So this is something that we would not uh, recommend, again, based on the experience in acute care hospitals. Very good. Uh, I'm so happy to have had that conversation and to be assured that uh, this is not, you know, a part of the thought process now yet again. Um, because screening like that does bring on a whole mm-hmm. host of other problems that um, we really should only be culturing when we truly suspect Correct. a central line infection. Very good. And kind of on top of that, um, there's a. Um, I've also heard of people doing another practice that we've uh, gotten away from doing in acute care hospitals, and that's routinely culturing a catheter tip. Um, uh, it's something that there's also a pretty high likelihood of uh, um, low count colony contamination of that catheter tip. And when those, again, when those cultures come back, it's hard for somebody to look at that and say, we don't need to treat them, we don't need to readmit them. So often patients who may not even have any kind of a, uh, infection at all might end up getting readmitted to the hospital and treated with antibiotics for that as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Is there anything more that you'd like to tell us about NHSN reporting and what this might mean in the future for outpatient and home care and alternative settings? Yeah. So NHSN is very interested um, and is really mandated with improving um, uh, the the quality of care of uh, of patients nationwide, and in particular, reducing the likelihood, uh, reducing rates of healthcare associated infections. Um, so, that being said, um, they have to sort of prioritize what they are work um, what they are working on. 
when I've spoken with the uh, leadership of NHSN, um, they are very, they have clearly done a lot of work for in acute care hospitals. They are starting to do quite a bit of work in hemodialysis centers um, and are just starting to do some work in places like surg- uh, outpatient surgical centers and that, um, and uh, other, and other ambulatory uh, centers where procedures are done. So home infusion therapy is on the list. They're but they're sort of waiting for to kind of work uh, get some of these other projects off the ground first. Um, and why this kind of creates a little bit of a problem when NHSN is uh, uh, starts a large initiative to improve uh, ther- uh, to improve quality of care. One nice thing is that. First off, they have uh, typically they typically develop definitions, um, so we don't really currently have that. Um, however, we are working on a large collabor- um, large collaboration um, using some of the results of some of the studies that have, uh, that have been done, as well as other studies that have been published, um, to see what we think a definition should be. Um, this will then have to be validated and things, um, with the hope that. Once uh, NHSN is able to get to home infusion therapy, uh, we'll be able to have a definition that works and not one that is basically the, exactly the same as in acute care hospitals. And we spend several years working very hard to find out that it doesn't work. The other thing that NHSN offers is a very robust reporting platform, um, which uh, infection preventionists um, all receive training and how to use it. Um, it is electronic, and uh, cases of CLABSIs, um, as well as other healthcare-associated infections, would all be put on this platform um, so that reports can be run. And then this uh, platform is typically what's used by Medicare, um, uh, state regulatory uh, bodies, other regulatory bodies, the Joint Commission, et cetera, in, um, in terms of looking at um, data. And of course, it gets fed directly directly back to the, hosp- uh, to the hospitals um, themselves. Um, and <laughs> this robust reporting platform is something that does cost a little bit of money, especially with the um, making sure that it's um, funds going forward mm-hmm. to keep for upkeep, et cetera. So that is one place where I really do think we need um, federal leadership, most likely through NHSN um, uh, or potentially through other bodies such as Medicare, um, CMS. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that to make some of this a little bit easier for folks who are trying to follow their own their their own data. Right. So um, this takes this dis- question is going to take our discussion just slightly, uh, you know, turn it just a bit. But even now, you know, in these discussions that we're having right now about um, central lines in the outpatient setting, do we have an idea of the types of central lines that are considered and those that are excluded from reportable data? Right. So this is an excellent question. Um, really what we consider uh, central uh, central lines in the work that we've done um, has been PICS clearly, um, tunneled and non-tunneled central lines, uh, things with um, Hickman catheters and, and things like that. Um, uh, pretty, uh, really, any uh, um, I've, any IV line that 
terminates either in the great uh, either in the great vessels um, uh, in the um, uh, or up, really up going up towards um, the uh, up towards the atrium, um, and so specifically that excludes things like peripheral IVs, midlines. There is some discussion about whether when ports um, implanted ports count um, because if a port is not accessed. It doesn't um, have the component of something that start uh, something that starts outside the mm-hmm. skin and goes in. Um, in acute care hospitals, where if ports are used, they're typically being used on a daily. Ba- they're typically being accessed on a daily basis, not accessed, deaccessed, mm-hmm. accessed, deaccessed, such as more typically occurs outside of the hospital. So this is one other area of debate. If a patient is has a port that they access and then deaccess once a month. Um, Technically, the NHSN criteria for acute care hospitals say if a port is accessed, um, it is eligible to be considered for a CLABSI two days later in acute care hospitals. Even if it is later deaccessed, it is still considered to be eligible for a CLABSI. If a patient, however, has been on um, receiving home infusion services for a year through a port once a month, and one day a month it gets accessed and then deaccessed, and then um, 25 days later uh, develops a bloodstream infection. Should that really be considered a CLABSI? That's where a little bit of the debate mm-hmm. is right now, and we're trying to determine that amount of what the appropriate amount of time would be, um, because these questions just don't come up in acute care. Typically, if someone in acute care has something that is accessed. They're going to keep that thing. They're going to keep that mm-hmm. line access for as long right. as they can. So it's a little bit different. Um, but most other um, uh, bloods uh, venous catheters would count. Okay. All right. Very good. Well, this is great work that you are a part of. Can you tell us? About next steps, what do you see in the future, and how how long do you think we're going to spend uh, working toward this definition? So our um, current steps, um, we have a expert panel that has been working hard on looking through all of these different definitions, and we had a conversation just about two weeks ago. Um, it was actually like one week ago, but by the time all this gets produced, just about two weeks ago, um, to go through some of the uh, pluses and minuses of the different definitions the group had looked at. Um, we're going to have a, that group rate all of these different components. And so hopefully within the next, once all of this, we put, um, gather all of this information, in the next few months should have um, sort of a work uh, the preliminary uh, uh, definition that people could try. The next thing that needs to happen, though, we know that whenever we put something out there, as people actually implement it, stuff, um, things happen that mean that the definition needs to get tweaked. Um, validation really needs to happen. This is something that different agencies would implement in the same way. And we know that the acute care class C definition has gone through many, many changes over the years. Um, really, the first version was over 20, possibly even 25 years ago, and changed dramatically since then. So it's going to, you know, need to be continuously looked at, revised. Um, if agent, uh, 
we're hoping that several different agencies will try putting this together and so we can sort of do some comparing and contrasting as far as what they um, how they're able to implement it and how feasible it is to implement um, and things like that um, as kind of the next step in terms of trying to make sure that this works and continuing conversations with groups such as NHSN to see when we might be able to actually um, implement this um, more in a more standardized national way so that infusion agencies can use it for their own benchmarking and their own quality improvement purposes. Okay. All right. And then, you know, through this also, there's lots of opportunities for um, uh, quality improvement. Uh, agencies can use this data for um, determining their best practices for training staff in, um, in how to manage the lines, training patients or caregivers and in, in how to manage the lines, um, training staff and how to draw blood, uh, how to draw blood cultures appropriately, um, things like that. So with this, we're hoping that um, really different agencies use it for their own quality improvement purposes as well. Excellent. This is very good. Okay, Sarah, thank you so much. You um, have just done a wonderful job talking us through this topic. I know that in the months and even years ahead, we are going to continue to keep talking about this. And when we see it actualized, um, we are, uh, you know, really going to be looking forward to what that definition is and what it means for our clinicians who work in alternate settings and in all outpatient areas. Yeah, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk okay. with you all. And we would also like to share with our listeners the um, point of access for the online report that gives the survey results. Um, so I'm going to put that in our show notes if you will share that information with us and allow everyone to read the report. All right, Absolutely. Thank you, Sarah. And this concludes this version of Talking in Vain. My name is Don Barrett, thanking you for the INS for listening in today.